And welcome to another edition of the Beer Vana Podcast. Hi, Jeff. Hey, Patrick. You're rocking a pretty fine voice today. <laughs> yeah, I'm a little under the weather, and I'm going to try not to sniffle. Uh, but I was a little bit unsuccessful on a few occasions uh, when we did our interview, which we'll talk about. Yes, but it so, sounds cool. It sounds like you got the, the, the bass going. Yeah, it's all in my head. It's a big head cold. I can't hear very well. I can't speak very well. I can't smell very well. It's like you've uh, smoked cigarettes half your life. <laughs> I got the bass. You got the, the bass. resonance. <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah, here we are again. Recording another Beer Vonda podcast. Um, because we always talk about the weather, we should talk about this glorious week. We're having a late, late September, beautiful, uh, low 80s. Not even that. Low, like low 70s. I think it's supposed to get up to like 82 today. Oh, wow. Well. Yeah. I like the low 70s. Cool at night. Cool at night. I don't nice mind the sun day. if it's defanged. <laughs> uh, so it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful day in uh, Birvana here. Um, uh, with me, of course, is uh, Jeff Allworth, author of The Secrets of Master Brewers, uh, The Beer Bible, and Out Next Spring, The Widmer Way. You can find him blogging at Birvana. You can find him tweeting at, at Birvana. <laughs> That you can. And uh, with me is Patrick Emerson, uh, professor of economics at Oregon State University. And you can find him tweeting at Beeronomics. Uh, you can indeed. Do you have any, we haven't really updated your, your, uh, my intro here. Do you have anything like any, any new stuff that's going on? Are you going to go on sabbatical? Have you published papers, something cool? Uh, well, here's what's interesting about sabbatical in my, my department, which is, uh, we've, um, uh, We've been kind of in the midst of a hiring freeze, and we've had a few. Uh, we've had retirees, and we've had people leave uh, voluntarily, and uh, so we're down to a very, <laughs> a very skeleton crew. I'll call it of, of economists. Uh, they got uh, you working in the salt mines in my department. No leaving. And so we we just had we just had a meeting where we we're all sort of negotiating about which what what would be the order of sabbaticals because we just can't handle more than one at once. Um, so next year would typically be my uh, I'd be due for a sabbatical, but. I'll probably wait a year so that we can all sort of take our turn and <laughs> get out there. Uh, otherwise, not a whole lot's going on, you know, doing research, publishing papers, teaching classes. Although this fall, I'm only teaching online. So, Well, there, there is a, uh, an important historical or life milestone that you passed the last week or two, uh, yeah. which I passed earlier this year, which is um, you're 50 now. Yep. Yep. I we hit both the big five zero. We we, we uh, this is we were sixty eighters, so we are we are now fifty. As so. we were talking about before the podcast, I hit fifty, and then the very next day got this cold. Uh, I'm also having all kinds of, uh, as I've mentioned in previous podcasts, um, trouble with my uh, with my teeth. Um, so having to basically reconstruct the front of my mouth from an old injury from when I was ten, and then again in when I was twelve, uh, and um, I'm having some problems playing. Uh, with injuries playing soccer. So uh, I feel like my body might be telling me something. <laughs> but you know what? You got a full, beautiful head of hair. So uh, you got that going for you. Well, this is true. You'll make a beautiful so, corpse if it goes this so way. So I can't complain. Yeah, that's right. So I'm really excited about this week's podcast because I've been bugging you for a while about this. And really, particularly since I uh, visited Germany. And in Germany, uh, there is... Uh, now a very established and sort of widespread tradition of non-alcoholic beer. And in fact, with the family I was staying with in Germany, in Erlingen, a nice town in Germany, uh, we stayed there for a few days. This is uh, uh, someone who did a, um, a study abroad uh, program or, no, what do you call it, um, when they, you host a person. Uh, 
with my wife. An exchange? An exchange student, yes, thank you. An exchange student who lived with my wife when they were in high school, and they've kept in touch ever since. Anyway, uh, they have a big uh, pantry that has a big stack of these beer crates with these reusable bottles, and one stack is regular alcohol beer, and one stack is non-alcoholic beer, and you just sort of pick depending on the circumstances. So I was wondering, since it's so ubiquitous there, why non-alcoholic beer hasn't made a dent in craft in the U.S. And serendipitously, we were contacted by uh, Bill Schufelt of um, Athletic Brewing Company, which is a new beer company in Connecticut that's founded, uh, and at least for the time being, are uh, focused solely on non-alcoholic beers. And for people who don't know our process, our process looks like this. Periodically, you get an idea for a pod, and you text (laughs) me and say, hey, we should do this. You should get on that. And uh, weeks or months ago, you texted me, hey, we should do non-alcoholic beer. Yeah. And I was at a loss. I thought, I'd have to, I don't know how to do that. Um, you, I, were, you were also very dismissive of, of the non-alcoholic uh, beer market in the U.S., and it turns out you were right. There's almost nothing there. Right. Uh, what exists is uh, the large macro brews version of the O'Doul's, the uh, Coors and N.A., and... Klaus Haller? Klaus Haller. There's one other. Miller's Miller's version. uh, And they're kind of famously bad. I mean, we've all had them at some point in our lives and and, um, just thought, that's terrible. That's a terrible thing. And so it it simultaneously does not meet any need and kind of creates a a barrier to anybody who would be interested in that market. So you you drink something else. You drink a a soft drink or something else. And I was, so I've been complaining about alcohol for a long time, (laughs) about how big the beers are in the Northwest. And luckily we have many more session, sessionable options now, but still it's something that I, that I modulate. I like to sit around. I'm an old man now, officially. I like to sit around with my friends and reminisce about the good old days uh, and that usually takes a while, especially since the memory isn't so good. So, you know, <laughs> <That's right. laughs> so you got to have some beers that you can keep drinking uh, during that uh, period of memory recall. Uh, and yeah, so I was kind of impressed with the quality of the beer in Germany, and thinking, you know, why hasn't why haven't craft brewers started to produce uh, non-alcoholic beers? Um, so, uh, uh, Bill Schufelt and John Walker are the co-founders of Athletic Brewing. We're going to talk to them today. Um, we're curious about how the beers were made, who buys them, uh, how they got into the uh, niche, this niche uh, of the beer industry, and how it's going uh, for them. I think they're four months in, yeah. so it's still very early days for them. But we wanted to know what the early reception's been like in the in, in the market. And in a rare or groundbreaking, really more than rare uh, uh, case, we have uh, we had transcontinental communication in which you were involved, and so we had a four-way conversation, which is kind of cool. Yes, I did not do the interview and then have Patrick comment on it afterwards. And a major technological breakthrough for this podcast. <laughs> Yours truly figured out how to do and record a Skype call. Yeah, on a Mac. So there uh, we go. It took a little of jiggering, but um, I came out pretty well, actually, I have to say. Uh, John's microphone wasn't the best, but um, but I think uh, uh, it all came out pretty well. And it was fun to be involved in the interview for, yeah. for the first time. It's, it's, it, it is important for you to be there because you ask different kinds of questions than I ask. So it's a richer conversation. All right. So we have, um, that's, a, that's a pretty uh, thorough conversation. We'll get to it uh, shortly. But of course, before we do, we have to get to... The news. 
As summer winds down, the news cycle slows, uh, though things should pick up soon, uh, pick up again soon. That means there wasn't a lot of news this time around. Uh, however, we should mention that the annual JBF Awards just concluded this weekend, and 2,404 breweries entered 8,496 beers. That's a lot all, of beer. That's a lot of beer. Uh, all competing for uh, one of the coveted 306 medals. Um, interestingly, so we'll talk a little bit about that, but interestingly, just to seed the conversation, uh, just five states accounted for over half the medals uh, in order of medals they won, California, Colorado, Oregon, Texas, and Washington. Um, California took a wa- home a whopping 72 medals, uh, or a quarter of the total. Interesting. So uh, I imagine that that's highly correlated with uh, the number of beers entered. It is. Uh, I'm those sure. are also those are also the the most established craft beer markets for the most part, right? California, Colorado, Oregon, Washington, Texas, too, maybe. Yeah, we don't have. Uh, actually, I didn't look it up. I don't think we have entry data, so we don't know what winning percentage of, of their you know what what California's winning percentage yeah. was. But that would be interesting because uh, you, of course, you worry. I mean, the center of gravity in craft brew is still probably West Coast. Lots going on the East Coast, though, but you wonder whether that just sort of represented in the in the uh, the festival itself and the judges and all that. So you end up getting this kind of West Coast bias. What do you think? Is there a West Coast bias in the GABF? Jeff, I put to you. Well, they're blind tasted, so I think the bias, as you point out, if it exists, would be the uh, entry bias. Oh, entry, so, but also palate, maybe. I don't think so. They okay. they get um, they get judges from around the country to come in. Um, there was only so just uh, there were probably I don't know because I went I went through and looked at all the, the states that had won and there were probably like fifteen states that didn't win any medals uh-huh. but only one uh, Mississippi didn't enter any medals right so um, it's uh, you know, so again a little bit difficult to say but I would I would say that um, you know we have a much more mature market out here and I think we're probably making um, beer that is uh, you know ahead of the game if you're yeah, just so getting, you know, you're that, in. that's what I was going to say. So I think there's a couple of things going on. There's selection bias, of course, which means that there's self-selection into this competition. Mm-hmm. But there's also uh, um, a very highly mature and competitive market, which I think uh, creates this, um, uh, I don't know, kiln for, <laughs> puts the heat on, on breweries to produce really top-notch beers. And so the stuff that sticks on the market is stuff that's sort of been tried and tested and... Um, so I imagine that the overall quality, that helps overall quality, this sort of intense competition. Uh, and uh, I do wonder whether there's, um, uh, who are the judges of the of the competition? They are uh, beer people, so writers, a uh, lot of brewers, brewery owners. You have to go through a process of vetting, and once you submit your um, uh, application and go through that process. It can take years to actually get accepted. Oh, so interesting. it's uh, backed up quite a bit. Yeah. So I wonder if just, you know, just through the through the sheer numbers that uh, amongst the judges, the West Coast is also overrepresented as well. And there might be, I mean, I'd, I'd be very interested to know whether the sort of regional flavors or t- palate that that, uh, that holds sway. But I don't know. Yeah, maybe. It's I mean, all speculation. There are 300, uh, 306... Uh, oh, um, Metals, which means there are uh, 102 categories. And so a Bach is a Bach is a Bach, you know? I mean, yeah. 
um, a lot of those are, are not going to be palate dependent. Right. Um, I think you're right that that could be a factor. Uh, but in some of the yeah, IPA, thing like that. Yeah. Although it was interesting. I did look at the, that we had three new categories, the hazy category, and there were three of them broken down by, uh, they had exactly the same, uh, criteria, but there was just different alcohol strengths. Interesting. And, uh, they were from all over the country. Uh, and in fact, I don't think New England won a single one. Wow. So, and they were... The fix is in. See, I'm telling you. <laughs> <laughs> but, there were, but they also weren't particularly from the West Coast either. Oh. So they were just, you know, I mean... Um, yeah, it is pe- the thing now. Yeah, people have access to uh, this information about how to make these beers. So even, even on the cutting edge where you'd expect uh, longer time people, uh, you know, people have been making IPAs longer to have an advantage. They didn't seem to have one there. Yeah. And by the way, I noticed that uh, the... Worthy Brewing's Strata IPA, which we test, we tasted on the last pod, was it? A um, recent a pod. A recent pod, thank you. It's 50 speaking, brains. speaking of memory. <laughs> That's <yeah>. right. <laughs> uh, which they sent to us because uh, it uses this new Strata hop, which was a, a proprietary hop that was uh, jointly produced by Oregon State University and um, Indie Hops, uh-huh. right? Uh, it won silver in the Australian Pale Ale, is that correct? Yeah. Australian Pale Ale. Which reminds me... Which is odd, by the way. But It, it is odd, but it's also one of those ways in which uh, brew, more sophisticated breweries have an advantage because entering in the right category is important. Uh, you may have the very best, um, uh, y- you know, pale ale in the world, but yeah. if you enter in an IPA, you're going to lose. Uh, yeah, I mean, the Strata hop is uh, super interesting. It didn't really strike me as an, Aust- an Australian or a South Pacific hop. But, but also, it didn't seem... Super American, either. As That's I true. Yeah. So good point. Maybe. All right. Well, uh, congratulations to all the winners. Yeah. Uh, congratulations to our local boys, uh, Freem Family Brewers, who won Mid-Size Brewery of the Year. That's right. And and just uh, one one comment there is, uh, I think the breweries that win are should certainly be extremely proud of their victories. Uh, you go through a, a blind tasting. If you've got if you win a medal, you you deserve to win it. But there is a bit of randomness, and Freem, I think, sure. for years has been considered uh, probably three or four years at least has been considered by most people in Oregon to be one of the top three or four breweries in the state, and they've really largely been shut out. Uh, so they finally got in into the awards and onto the stage this year. To flip that, Breakside wins everything always, and they got <laughs> they got nothing this year. So you know you you can you can send good beers um, that won last year, and uh, they don't win this year because yeah. of the vagaries of, of judging. Which is all to say, it's great to win, and it's it's a great uh, uh, thing to accomplish, and it's a good signal for the market. But uh, there's also a lot of randomness and a lot of great beer out there, whether or not it wins. Is... That's right. Don't don't lose heart if you didn't win this year. Yeah. Okay, so uh, let's turn now to our main topic, which is our discussion with the founders of Athletic Brewing in Stratford, Connecticut, uh, Bill Schufelt and John Walker. Uh, John Walker is also the head brewer, master brewer. I'm not sure what he goes by. Yeah, he called himself head brewer, but I think he's the the brewer. So um, and, anything you want, really. Yeah. So uh, how would you like to set this up? I see they have some data you collected here. Let's talk about what the non-alcoholic beer market looks like. Yeah, so um, there's a big report out uh, uh, from Global Market Insights that was forecasting where the market's going to be. And they said worldwide, uh, non-alcoholic beer will be at $25 billion by 2024. They expect it to be one of the massive growth areas in the beer segment, while, while others are, are shrinking or, or just trying to hang on. 
And this next one is globally. So the people who drank non-alcoholic beer by age in 2018. So 18 to 29. No, that was the United States. The U.S., okay. Yeah. So, 18 to, so 18 to 29-year-olds were 4.8% of the market. 30 to 49-year-olds were 7% of the market. 50-plus was 1%, which is interesting because we'll talk about that when we talk to, uh, to Bill and John. That's right. We had a sneak preview of this data, uh, and so we were not surprised when he mentioned one of those age range. Age range was surprising him. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, non-alcohol beer is pretty prevalent, especially in Europe. Um, yeah. These these data that you have here were slightly different than what what he quoted, but that's right. These were survey data, not sales data. Uh, okay. So I think that's uh, there's there's this group called Mintel, which is a market research group, and they do surveys. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you've got it in front of you. you can read that. Yeah. Well, I, 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 the survey data that we have here um, uh, is let's see. The consumption of non-alcoholic beer is growing fast, with as many as 33% of Spanish, 23% of German, and 9% of French consumers drinking this variety. Uh, however, while European interest is high, China, turns out, is the most prolific global innovator of low and low-alcohol beer. Product launches, according to uh, Min, uh, Mintel Global New Products Database, uh, more than one in four, or 29% of beers launched in China uh, contain low or no alcohol compared to one in 10 beers launched in Spain, which is 12% of the market, uh, 12% of the new beers, uh, 11% of the new beers in Germany, and 9% of the new beers in Poland. Um, the global average is just about 8%. Yeah, and I think maybe, I think I actually see one of the differences here in this, these data and the ones that he mentions, which is um, 33% of Spanish drinkers uh, consume um, uh some these no, beers, yeah. but the market itself is is lower, it's, and I right. think that would make sense because some people who drink non-alcoholic beers also drink alcoholic beers. So you 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 see that more a larger percentage of the people who drink non-alcoholic beers are represented than is actually reflected in yeah. the market penetration. And uh, as he mentions in, in the interview, but but there's basically almost no data on the U.S. Uh, and uh, Anecdotal evidence of my own suggests that there's basically no non-alcoholic <laughs> beer in craft in the U.S. Yeah, uh, that they are real pioneers. Um, if you know of something, please let us know. Uh, it would be very fascinating to know about other companies that are doing the same thing, or at least other regular craft beer companies that are producing a, a non-alcoholic variety. Right. Uh, but uh, shall we turn to the interview? Yeah. Let's just say that there's one quirk of this interview where uh, Bill dropped out briefly. And we've tried to paste that together elegantly, but it's not. It, you may notice some funkiness there when he's talking about Coca-Cola, the the, the uh, calories, content, yeah. yeah, and sodas, and so um, that's what's going on there. Yeah. Otherwise, um, we hope that you can hear what's going on and, and enjoy the conversation. Uh, we are here uh, together with. Um, uh, I'm I'm here with Patrick, which is kind of unusual, uh, and we are joined by uh, Bill Schufelt and John Walker, who are the co-founders of Athletic Brewing, which is a non-alcoholic brewing company in Stratford, Connecticut. Uh, so I'll just pause here and say hello to everyone. Hi. Thank you very much for having us on. Um, we're honored to be on your podcast. <laughs> big, uh, big fans. You should not be long time listeners. Yeah. Yeah, long-time listeners, first-time callers. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, we um, have been curious to do a, a project, uh, a podcast on non-alcoholic beers for uh, months. Patrick mentioned it to me, and I thought I have no idea how to approach that. So, um, 
uh, Bill emailed us and just saved the day. So now we're going to talk about non-alcoholic brewing and hear what you guys are doing, how you're doing it, and who you're doing it for. Um, so let's just get started and say, why don't you give us a little bit of background on um, the, the sort of idea behind this? You own, Just to be clear, you only do non-alcoholic beers, is that right? Yep. Yeah, the whole brewery is dedicated to non-alcoholic craft beer, yep. So tell us how you decided to have a brewery devoted to non-alcoholic craft beer. Yeah, it's uh, kind of out there. Um, I mean, pretty much like everyone else, the first 25 years of my life, if I was ever referring to non-alcoholic beer, it was probably to make fun of it. Um, just because it was all very low quality options out there. Um, or not necessarily low quality, but just not exciting craft and in a flavorful way. Um, and really as, so in my past life, this is Bill speaking, uh, I was in the hedge fund world in finance, very much a desk job, but when I was outside of work, I would try to be as social, but also as healthy and active as possible. Um, and there was a point where I was getting more healthy and active and drinking on nights and weekends was somewhat interfering with my professional life and my fitness. Um, so I stopped drinking for a couple months just to see how it would go. Um, felt great, but the one thing I really missed was craft beer. Um, I'd gone to college up in Vermont, uh, where there's obviously great craft beer, and then it was readily available in New York also. Um, so it was, it was abundantly clear coming from that to going out to bars and restaurants, like sitting down to dinner, not drinking beer or wine. It, the options were very limited, especially five years ago. Um, so it was kind of a curiosity that it started as a conversation with me and my wife, and then I got obsessed with it. Before I knew it, I was working on it every night and weekend for like 12 hours on Saturdays outside of work. And eventually it got to a point where I'd done a couple of years of work on it in the background, developed a business plan, looked into different processes and the science behind it, and learned a lot about brewing. Um, but there was only so far I could take it while having a day job and having limited and doing it myself. Um, so that's when I quit my day job and started to look for the right partner to build the business with. Um, and that's when, after a bunch of conversations, I got connected with John. And uh, the project really took off from there, where um, John, as a very accomplished craft brewer in his prior life in New Mexico, um, was more talented than anyone I thought I could possibly team up with. Uh, he was, well, I'll let him speak to that himself, but the project after I teamed up with John grew hugely in vision where we decided to build a real brewery. Like we have an 8,000 square foot brewery dedicated all the non-alcoholic beer after teaming up with John. Um, so I guess I could let John speak to his background also. And when we teamed up and like, what excited him about the project also. Yeah, no, Phil was, uh, we met originally and, you know, it, I was curious for sure and I had no idea how it would come about or how to do it, but I'm always intrigued by learning new things and processes and making things better, uh, no matter what it is. And Phil seemed super passionate about the project and what he had envisioned and definitely sold me on it. And, yeah, it was 
it was pretty easy to come on board and take the leap and give it a shot. John, this is Patrick. Had you thought about uh, non-alcoholic beer prior to Bill reaching out to you? No. <laughs> we, we were curious, uh, this is Jeff, uh, what, as you were doing research on this, uh, Bill, what, um, you know, what, what kind of uh, information you were finding about what the market looked like, um, what kind of demand existed, what, what were you finding in those hours that you were obsessing on this while you were doing your day job? Yeah, it, um, it, was, it was actually more dead ends than anything, which <laughs> was almost as exciting to me as anything, um, which made it more intellectually curious and everything. Um, I came across just that the market is huge overseas. It's 10% in a lot of European countries. It's even 15% in a lot of big European beer drinking countries like Germany, it's 15%. Spain, it's 15%. The UK, it's 10% of the beer market. And it made no sense to me. It's hard in the US to even find data on the non-alcoholic beer market, um, where it was, at that point, it was like a $60 million a year business nationwide. So like 0.5% of the US beer market. Um, and that discrepancy just made no sense to me as the US is an evolving, healthy and active country with people who have a real taste for high quality ingredients and craft beverages and high quality food. So um, like that really, that discrepancy really stood out to me. And particularly um, in craft beer, uh, there's no yep. tradition in the US at least of, of non-alcoholic beer. So I'm wondering, is this something ex post that you found a um, I'm going to talk like an economist now, sorry, but a latent demand yeah, for it. Was there a demand existing that you're fulfilling? Or are you really having to sort of create uh, demand through education and outreach? Yeah, it, uh, I definitely thought it was going to be a huge educational product. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. And, um, with the, I think there's a big discrepancy in the brewing community and the real world, actually, where in trying to find the right partner to team up with to start this business, or asking for advice in contract brewing, looking at equipment. It was a lot of dead ends in the brewing community where people wouldn't take your phone calls if it was for non-alcoholic beer. Really, like, no candidates were interested in non-alcoholic beer. A lot of people in the brewing world very nicely advised me, like, you know, there's no demand for that. I'd, I'd be very careful putting a lot of money behind that. Um, so, but then when we started to launch and we made a very full sponsorship calendar where we were going to be at a lot of events, sampling a lot of beers, because no one really walks into a grocery store and goes to check out what's new on the non-alcoholic shelf because, like, <laughs> nothing's nothing's changed back there in 30 years. So oh, still Klaus Taylor, uh, yeah, <laughs> O'Doul's. No, but like, yeah, O'Doul's, Klaus Taylor, Coors NA, or Klaus Taylor, I think, is only like 12 years old, maybe, but like Caliber, O'Doul's, mm -hmm. all those are like 30-year-old beers. Um, so there was no reason for anyone to be checking that corner of the store. And when we started doing events and opening the tap room, it was like people just got it. We didn't have to explain too much to them. Huh. Like we'd tell them a little bit about the healthy benefits of the beer, that it naturally has potassium and calcium and anti-inflammatory qualities. And it just really struck a chord with healthy and active people. And then they see like the 50 to 70 calories and they're even more on board. Um, 
so like the educational hurdle was much lower than we thought with actual customers. Right. But in terms of us actually starting the business, it was much higher. <laughs> where, we, <laughs> where we thought we would just have to make this process and everything would be great and we'd be pumping out beer. Um, it really ended up being a very different framework and there's a lot of regulatory and food safety stuff also. That, so that was more our education, but not outside world domain. Right. Right. We do want to get to that, but before we get too far down the road, let's uh, let's talk about how this beer is made. Um, Patrick and I have a dim sense of this, uh, and I understand that there are a couple of ways to make it. Um, what was your research process on that, and and you know what are the ways, and how do you make it? Yeah, it. Um, so it's it's kind of a tricky thing where. Um, so we had we did a ton of research where I read brewing textbooks to the best of my ability. Did a lot of online searching that came up more or less fruitful, but it really wasn't until I went to John with like two or three potential ideas, and we actually got in the same room together, basically in an empty warehouse, doing like a hundred batches of homebrew together to test all these methods, one variable at a time. Where we really started to figure out our process. Um, it's a, we're trying to figure out a way to better communicate our process with the brewing community. Um, just be, because of like the commercial interests of our like investors and stuff like that, where, um, it's so traditionally non-alcoholic beer is made by either burning off alcohol or aggressively filtering the alcohol, um, with reverse osmosis, membrane technologies and the like. Um, okay, which, let me interrupt you there. So yeah. you make a regular beer and then you take the alcohol out. That's that's process A. Yeah, that's like the traditional way where okay. everything's been done that way. If you go the traditional, like most traditional way of burning off the alcohol, you really don't have much of a chance of retaining hop character because hops start to burn off like 15 degrees cooler than alcohol itself. Mm. Um, and it definitely caramelizes malts in like a funky fashion, which John can definitely speak to better than I can. Um, so that's like one traditional way. And then there's different reverse osmosis and membrane technologies, which I did spend a lot of time researching those, uh, talking to some very nice people from overseas in mornings before I went to my old job. Um, but ultimately we decided that it doesn't make sense to pursue traditional technologies because if those did work well, other people would already be doing it while using those methods. Um, and that's when we really started to just turn to brewing textbooks and try to figure out a process where we could have tweaks along the whole way, have a natural process where we just brewed a super sessionable level. Um, so that's kind of how we're approaching the levels and or the problem is in an all natural way, where we use traditional brewing ingredients and just brew controlling different variables at different times um, on mostly normal brewing equipment um, yeah, to arrive at beers under 0.5%. So John, uh, you're the brewer here. What did that look like from you, from your perspective as you were trying to figure this out? I, I assume that they don't teach this in school and you don't learn this like nobody does one-off non-alcoholic beers so this must you must have been starting at zero 
Yeah, definitely <clears throat> starting at zero, especially, you know, coming from the craft world where your community is it's just a bunch of teachers and you're learning together and everybody shares everything. It's, you know, it's great. Uh, we had no resources here in that sense. And since we wanted to do it a different way, we kind of mixed the whole textbook resource too. So that made it even more difficult. And so it became more trial and error. And then um, definitely had to unlearn a lot of things. Not necessarily unlearn, but twist how things are done um, technique-wise. Uh, you know, everything from pH to sugar profiles, concentrations, stuff like that. Um, so really had to change how I or we thought about how to produce this product. And, you know, it, it wasn't easy by any means, and still isn't. And then, then you throw into the, the mix the food safety portion, uh, which alcohol beer doesn't really have to, to battle with because it's got alcohol. And so then you have a whole other animal. Oh, that's true. Never thought of because, that. Yeah, because then, I mean, you know, you, you take your your brewery that, you know, everybody does, everybody does a decent job cleaning and sanitation and all that. Um, and then here it's just, you have to be under a lot more scrutiny and you have to make sure that you're putting out a safe product. So that was, that was definitely another huge challenge. So in the process of making this, it sounds like you're, um, you're, it, our, our listeners are pretty educated about, about brewing. Um, you're starting with uh, maybe fewer sugars to deal with at the start with, so your, your, your ingredients are lower, is that? I mean, I sense that you probably don't want to talk about your process, but just to kind of give a sense of, of how this overview works, um, is, is uh, how do you, yeah, just anything you want, to, want and can tell us about that, uh, I think our listeners would love to. Uh, I, I think from, I mean, you can tell by the calorie count alone that, you know, it's, it starts lower, but you, know, you, can, you can determine that from, from any book. So, yeah, we start with, start with less, but that, that's only one little, one little piece. Yeah, it's been tough to communicate it, um, <laughs> just because we did in our search to like get to market. And we did try to go like the contract brewing route and different ways to start the business. And we really ran into dead ends at every turn. So we did end up having to raise a lot more money than we originally anticipated. And um, so it would be tough for our investors yeah. for us to like assume, cause we're only like four months on the market that like once we launched, if we gave like the perfect roadmap for it, but sure. it's it's also just that it is it's not like a single magic bullet answer. Also, where it is very complicated with like fifteen different changes from the normal brewing process. And it's like any one given part like that doesn't necessarily like speak to the whole rest of the process. Also, so it's uh, it's an interesting like massive also yeah yeah and we totally get it i understand i'm gonna ask you a slightly different question which is that yeah. your your branding and then that feeds right into the beer you brew is both is is uh, 
I want to choose my words carefully because I don't want to sort of pick the wrong word that sounds bad, but it's sort of a lifestyle, yeah. like your athletic brewing company, um, these low-calorie, uh, low-carb beers uh, that have low alcohol all sort of feed into this idea of a very healthy, active uh, sort of lifestyle product, right? Yeah, we're definitely, with the name, we're trying to make it very inclusive and positive, where mm-hmm. non-alcoholic beer has traditionally been such a penalty box beverage. We want someone in a bar ordering our beer to have a ready, easy answer to give to anyone who ordered, like who asked them why they're drinking non-alcoholic beer. They can say, you know, I'm just trying to be healthy tonight. Um, I'm like, we really want it to be like a healthy lifestyle brand, as you said. Um, And yeah, I think the name itself best accomplishes that. Mm -hmm. We're trying not to make it a hardcore athletes only, like extreme sports beverage. We like we very much want to be involved in the craft community and have like be um yeah having a brand that's more active and healthy than like necessarily just for athletes yeah okay um, <clears throat> patrick jumped in there i have one other question on the brewing side because you know that's, yeah. that's where I, my, my mind always goes um you guys make or at least sent us when we'll taste these later a golden ale an ipa a stout and a goza uh, I got that right? Yep. Um, John, uh, are these, uh, with the process you use, is it challenging to try to introduce a new beer flavor? And one thing that you guys is different than, you know, Oduels or these other companies is those are just, you know, light lager uh, versions, one style, one process. Um the process of making uh, a stout is very different than it is for making a goza, um, it just conventionally. And I'm wondering, when you try to do this in the non-alcoholic version, is it is it uh, pose an entirely new set of challenges? Uh, to a certain extent, I mean, the, yes and no. I mean, the, the hardest part is trying to emulate an actual style, and right. so. That, that's the hardest part for me, I think, is, you know, when you taste the beer, yeah, it's going to be low, low alcohol. There are some, like, inherent differences that one will experience, but trying to make it have some, you know, technical-ish qualities that an alcoholic version might have, that's, that's the hardest part. Um, but, the, you know, the processes are not that different. Are there any styles that lend themselves to non-alcoholic that they translate better? Um, you know, I, I I would say for just on the food safety level, when the you know the more acidic and the hoppier, the better, just because natural you know, antimicrobial qualities. Right. Yeah, as far as I know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's also slightly different processes for different styles, too. Um, uh, yeah, I would like, imagine. Yeah, like if we were to make a Hefeweizen or something like that, it would be a different process than, I'm just thinking of different beers that we homebrewed back over the winter as well. So in general, how easy a time or how difficult has it been to, uh, uh, sorry, you, you're a packaging brewery, so you sell in cans. Do you also uh, keg as well? Yep. So how, how difficult has it been to 
get your uh, get tap handles and bars and shelf, and shelf space and cooler space in, in supermarkets? Have you have you uh, had to uh, battle, or is, are people receptive to trying out the product? They're pretty receptive. Um, if you go in with the proper introduction, or as long as you have samples in tow and people can try it there, mm-hmm. once people taste it, they're pretty receptive and excited about it. Um, some supermarkets definitely took longer than others, but we really did have a great local partner in our home state distributor, Star Distributor. Um, an amazing sales force who all came to the brewery, tried the beer, and just immediately got it. So we're really thankful that we had them and their reputation kind of leading the way for our product in the market, um, which when I was doing individual meetings before that on my own, it was much tougher. So we're very glad we teamed up with them as a good partner in the market. Um, There's been, when it goes on tap at places, it's been exciting to see it turn. We've got probably five places where we're at on tap in the market. And some places, like one bar I know went through four logs last month. So um, some of it's turning very well, but we're mostly cans out there where we're kind of in the phase where we're leading with cans. And as people ask for more, then hopefully tap handles will follow after that. But in a, I think John and I were talking about this yesterday, actually, where when you're out west, more or like in New York City also places tend to have 15 to 30 tap handles right in in Connecticut it's usually much more limited like Mm. we usually see like six tap handles or so so it's it's very tough to get one of those as a non-alcoholic right off the bat right Um, but we're really thankful for the partners who did take a shot on it right off the bat so um, hopefully it's been working well there so it occurred to me when we were talking about this podcast that you're not actually making an alcoholic product. And I was wondering, are you governed by the same rules that govern beer? Do you need to go through a distributor? What's your access to market path look like? Is it the same as beer or, or are you in a different category? It's kind of a total gray area. We're <laughs> yeah, yeah. In, in the eyes of the law, we're the same thing as like a fruit juice, a kombucha, or any other carbonated soft drink. Um, so we really could have chosen any channel to market that we want. Um, and we do use e-commerce and ship nationwide from our website. Um, and so that's an interesting channel that's not available to beer either. Um, but yeah, we, we chose to work with beer distributors because, um, generally they are very good at what they do and they have a lot of great relationships. They're very good at logistics. Um, so we've, had a lot of conversations and been very careful about who we go into business with and we've been lucky to find some incredible partners um but yeah in terms of so that's the distribution side then on the regulatory side we're not really governed by the ttb except for labels we're fda regulated we're regulated by our home state uh department of consumer protections um and then any other certifications you want to get on top of that also. Right. Um, where John and I also had to go, we went to University of Rhode Island for a different food safety certification for a week. And there's, we've been very lucky with the people we've been connected with who've given us great advice um, along the way. Like we had an unbelievable food safety professional who helped us get up and running and recommended 
we went, go to food safety school and different things like that. That I, I mean, we would have never figured that out on our own. Um, and it would have been a scary launch as we figured out these things in reverse. So we're thankful for that as well. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, you're caught between two worlds in a way. Yeah. And from time to time, they do weigh in where you wouldn't expect it. Like, <laughs> like communication from the TTB last week was unexpected or like different stuff like that or more thorough in, um, inspections of our plant and which we have to keep super clean anyway for food safety. But it's, I think it's just a bit more intense world on the site regulation stuff. Yeah, you're kind of more like a commercial kitchen than a brewery in a way, huh? Yeah, definitely. We're yeah, food regulated. Yeah, yep. that's interesting. Did you ever uh, ponder the idea of um, doing both at the same brewery, having alcohol and non-alcoholic beers? I'm wondering whether you thought that there would be uh, sort of it would muddy the brand or whether it would be sort of economies of scale. Uh, I can think of both ways it would go. Yeah, we're, um, we're most likely, just by feedback, it's, there's almost some of the reverse going on where in the past, like if a group of 10 people went to a bar or a restaurant, maybe one or two of those wouldn't want to drink and there'd be no good options. Right. Where if a group of five adults comes into our tap room, there's definitely always at least one who would probably prefer a regular strength beer. Right. Um, so luckily, John's a very accomplished craft brewer who could probably do that in his sleep. So we're actually going, we do have our TTB um, notice and we just thought we'd fit in the system better if we had it. And so we are going to just do like a beer at a time at our tap room uh -huh. just to meet customers. Um, but yeah, we're also thinking about all different things, uh, like low strength beers, we think would be very much in line with our mission also. Yeah. Like there are a lot of people who really recognize sessionable beers and like that they're definitely drinking occasions where a sessionable beer makes more sense. Um, like I actually, I heard you guys talking, I think over the summer, you guys were talking about how few sessionable beers there were in Portland and like regular craft beer drinkers definitely there's definitely a time and a place for a good session beer. So mm -hmm. we're thinking even lighter in alcohol might be a good way to bridge the gap to someone being like, oh, well, I like this 2% beer. Maybe I'll just like non-alcoholic also. And um, so we're definitely thinking about toying around with those ideas, but making it 2% is pretty much just as hard as a non-alcoholic, we think. Um, that makes me wonder who you're audience looks like uh, who comes into the the tap room um who who are you you know do you have any sense of, of who you're marketing to or, or uh who your audience is and and it, is that going to change if, if this becomes more popular what, what are your thoughts on that yeah it's definitely something we pictured would be a 30 plus beverage and all the way up in ages to ages where it was like a medical requirement um and we've actually been really pleasantly surprised by how young the demographic of people drinking our beers is. Um, millennials are very worried about their social image, their professional careers, and any sort of drinking mistake could end up on social media and stuff like that. And they're very health focused also. So we, 
I never thought we'd sell a single beer to anyone in their 20s, and it's actually turned out to be a lot of people commenting positively in that demographic. Um, I would say our main demographic is probably like 30, like low 30s to 50, though, where it's families, like young parents with kids, or just it's people who really enjoy the like premium beverage of craft beer and like appreciate its two true taste qualities, but they also want that on the other drinking occasions when they can't drink. So it's like, instead of like it being an either or proposition, I think there's a lot of overlap where it's just those, say 30% of drinking occasions that the traditional beer market was missing. I think our customers are finding us there. kind of. Um, so it's kind, kind of what we're going for. It's not like cannibalizing craft, just adding more drinking occasions back in. Yeah. Well, as the parent of two kids, I can say that there are many times when I'm out and it would be great to have a, a beer without having to worry about the alcohol consequences and especially when you're driving kids around and stuff. Um, so. Yeah, oh, for sure. Yeah. Things where from a craft perspective, what you say makes total sense to me that, of course, you would be um, reaching out to people who, who drink um, all different kinds of things, alcoholic and non, beer and non. Um, but the earlier generation of non-alcoholic beer was really uh, pitched right at people who liked beer but couldn't drink alcohol, as opposed to people who sometimes wanted a non-alcoholic beer. Anyway, it seems that way, looking at the way those were marketed and, and the way they taste. Um, so it seems like that, you know, you, you struck on something that seems very intuitive to me, uh, but maybe was missed for decades by the beer industry. Yeah, I think um, you definitely put that in a good way where it's they just had mismarketed it. Um, I also think it's, yeah, we kind of go along with the same trend where craft beer is thriving because people are trading up in quality and yeah, it's not craft losing volume. It's like craft is going to be fine because it's a premium beverage and people are going to drink instead fewer higher quality beers where I think the macro beers continue to lose share to both us and craft um, where there weren't options there. I also think it might like we might get some of that like Michelob Ultra market where that's one of the fastest growing beers out there, but it's really very much a mass market beer it's not really that low in alcohol and it's still almost 100 calories so it's very well branded but i think people might go for like a high quality ingredient craft beer without the alcohol for those situations also um but yeah that that's kind of the market that we're definitely going for young adults and then i think we're going to win that traditional market that you talked about just based on quality alone yeah yeah, I can imagine, uh, you know, extending a session um, with a couple of non-alcoholic beers when I'm out with friends or hanging around watching a game. Um, so that makes total sense to me. Yeah, a lot of, on that same note, a lot of breweries in our home state here in Connecticut and then just over the border in New York have asked to have our beers on tap or in their brewery just because it allows people to pace themselves more. If someone's overserved, they could just switch them to non-alcoholic. Or it keeps their drivers there longer also, so the group could hang out. Right. So, yeah, the local breweries and two roads right down the street have been awesome neighbors and partners in growing this. Very cool. 
So tell us a little bit about the product itself uh, in terms of, you said it's it's 50 to 70 calories. Is that what you said? Yeah. They're, uh, so the Golden Ale is 50 calories. The IPA is 70 calories. Um, they're both high in electrolytes, potassium, calcium. Um, it, beer itself is like a very positive health beverage where like for we stand at the end of like Ironman races and marathons on weekends and just pour free beers by the thousand for people. And uh, it's it's kind of an easy pitch because beer does have good anti-inflammatory qualities naturally also. And like there's a, there's a lot of good going on in your traditional craft beer. Um, you could definitely do a lot worse of beverages to be drinking. So um, I think the shift from people drinking sugary soft drinks to our beers and other craft beers is definitely a positive. Um, and we're just trying to meet people at a calorie count that makes sense in like their weekday lives while they're working out that much and stuff. Yeah, that's really low. Um, what, uh, I should know this offhand, but like what does a, a soda have for calories? Um, well, all the diet, I think all the diet sodas are zero. Right. I want to say, I want to say a Coke's like 100 calories. Coke has 150 calories. <laughs> okay. Oh, sorry, I don't, I don't know why it shifted out of the window. And uh, a regular craft beer is probably two, 300 calories, something like that? Um, they're really all over the place. Yeah, range, that's true. Right? <laughs> some... um, yes, a lot of IPAs are 300-ish calories, but right. they're also, I know Two Roads has lighter offerings. I know, I know a lot of the more mass market IPAs are like 200 and then something like Sequench is definitely lower also. Um, but the at, range is not as are, big as some people think. I know I, I hear some people say, oh my God, that double IPA has got 500 calories and you know, that Kolsch only has a hundred calories, but it tends to be more in that two to 300 range. It seems like, except for very, very large beers. Yeah. We're definitely not out to make, craft as an unhealthy beverage because no. people really don't drink huge quantities of them and they are such high quality ingredients in general. Um, I think it's more the other beers that people might be drinking because they think they're healthy, but they're really missing the mark on both fronts, you know? Um, well, I really like what you say about sort of, and I'll, again, talk like an economist, sort of the idea that your, bill, your beer is a complement to craft beer, not a substitute. Uh, and the reason I got really excited to do this podcast or just talk about non-alcoholic beers in general is I uh, was in Germany last summer and, and was staying with a family uh, for a few days. And they, like most German families, probably uh, have their pantry with a big rack of, of beers. But they had two types. They had a regular and a non-alcoholic beer. And they would just drink whichever type sort of suited the moment. So if they were going to jump in their car, they would have non-alcoholic beer. Or if they were uh, in for the evening, maybe they'd have an alcoholic beer. So I really like that idea that you had options and you could still enjoy a good beer. Yeah, it's it's kind of exactly what we're going for. We don't see any reason why there can't be two or three non-alcoholic beers on any like impressive beer menu. Mm -hmm. um, like my little brother went skiing in Europe a couple of years ago, and he called me and was like, you won't believe it. He's like, you ask a waitress at the bar for a non-alcoholic beer, and they not only understand what you're saying, but I'll ask you which kind or style you want. And so it was a cool experience and gave me a lot of hope as I was early in my research doing that. And I really don't see any reason why U.S. bars can't have a similar offer. 
and it's yeah it really doesn't have to be just lager styles too it can be they can be really sophisticated healthy beverages well that's amazing uh we are we're, we're feeling educated now is there anything we haven't asked that uh we should know about your beer your process uh your brand something uh, we haven't asked um john can you think of anything i'm uh really at a bit of loss for words. I mean, we really just were thankful for, like, as being a fledgling participant in the craft beer community and trying to get ourselves off the ground. It's like people like yourselves who put out great content, you can't even imagine how helpful it is to someone like us as we try to find our way. Um, we found great mentors through content like yours and elsewhere where you can emulate a great brewery like Fremont or like an Aslin or someone like that, or like a Trillium, and learn a lot about them through like a detailed podcast with them. And it, it just really helps to, like as someone trying to find their way in the business. Uh, you know, we're really honored that you even chose to talk to us. With, uh, <laughs> well, cheers. I mean, Likewise, that's for, very nice of you to say. One thing I uh, wanted thanks. to say on going out is, uh, one thing that's pretty exciting, and you referred to this earlier in our conversation, is that since you are not selling an alcoholic beverage, you can sell it, uh, ship it, and sell it anywhere. And so on your yep. website, um, you can order it. So all our listeners sort of in the United States have access to your product. Yeah, it's a very cool loophole. <laughs> yeah, not exactly something. a loophole. I mean, it's a yeah. product, so yeah. Yeah, I guess it's it's a lot of work to ship the beers, but uh, we did. I think we have it figured out pretty well now, and we just started offering free shipping last week. Also. Oh, wow. oh, I didn't see that. That's yeah. excellent. Yeah. So, listeners, uh, there you go. You can give this a try, and it, uh, we'll let you guys know that um, we're going to record the regular podcast, the, the other parts of the podcast, after we hang up with you, and we will taste your beer. So that'll be fun, and we can uh, uh, guide the listeners to your website and uh, if they want to work with us. Oh, thank you very much. Really interested in hearing the feedback. Yeah, yeah, we'll ask them for feedback too if, uh, if they do that, so that'll be cool. All right, well, uh, Bill and John, thank you very much for taking some time to talk with us today. Yeah, Wish you the you. best of luck. Oh, thank you so much, and thank you guys for all you do and all your content and everything. It's really so informative and helpful. Oh, well, thank you. You're making us... You're, <laughs> that's uh it goes against our brand which is that we're half-assed so uh, <laughs> you know uh, we, we do appreciate that though. yeah all right guys cheers very cool have a great week thanks for having us yeah. all right thanks a lot bye. bye okay so as we mentioned the Good folks at Athletic Brewing uh, sent us samples of their beer. Uh, actually, I should be more specific. They sent you samples of the beer. So this is actually the first time I'm seeing it. So tell us what we've got here. Yeah, so their, their flagships are a Golden Ale and an IPA. Mm -hmm. And uh, we've got the, we're going to taste all these beers. And I'm pretty darn excited at this point after that conversation. Um, so Golden Ale, IPA, uh, and then they also have uh, seasonals, which are a Goza and a Stout. Interesting. So this is a quite a broad range of beer styles. We mentioned that in the in the podcast, I think, so or in the interview. Yeah, and I'll be honest too. I'm super excited to try this. I'm, this has been something that I wanted to do the pod partly for interest and partly to try to maybe spur 
on the market a little bit here because this is actually a product if it's uh, good quality i'm very interested in so right. let's give it a try so you're cracking open the golden ale this smells like beer it immediately smelled like a normal beer one kind of it kind of looks like beer oh i gotta do it here you can get the sound effects here we go Oh, that. <laughs> that's a little bit sound. So this is a uh, a light but golden color. It's very yeah. It's very uh, it's very pale. Perfectly clear. Yeah. Now you, this is where I'm really gonna have a struggle because of my head cold. You're gonna have to lead us lead us through this. It has a ton of esters, so the esters are really popping. Interesting. Um, yeah. Uh, so as they very fruity nose, uh, we sort of have to speculate. Uh, because they didn't want to say too much about their process, but it's probably a combination of uh, lower malt bill, um, uh, malts that don't have uh, high sugar content. Uh, I was curious about whether they shortened the fermentation period, so I wanted to know how many esters actually they got out of it. So uh, Jeff's just ready to talk about it. Go ahead. Oh, I no, I'm just nodding. <laughs> uh. um, it's uh, uh, It tastes like a beer. It doesn't taste, so every beer kind of tastes different, and there's some unusual uh, characteristics here. Yeah. Uh, are you What are you getting with your cold head? Yeah, with that cold head, yeah. I, I do have to say that I'm very uh, um, uh, handicapped here in terms of um, not having the full use of all my senses, but uh, it tasted a lot like a beer. The one difference I noticed is that you get that kind of, at the end, the alcohol leaves a little bit of uh, stringency on your tongue, mm. and you sort of miss that at the end. Yeah, the finish is, um, so I'll just break this down when I'm tasting here. Um, a lot of esters. Kind of a nice malt character. Mm-hmm. Um, not a super specific malting, just right. kind of barley taste. Um and then when you finish, it's it's quite uh, it finishes quite crisply as you would expect uh, a, a golden to finish, um, but it has a funny uh, there is a an interesting Residual. quality yeah, at the yeah. aftertaste that yep. uh, is unusual. And if you were if you're trying to pick it up in a blind lineup, what's which one is the non-alcoholic? I I that, think that's the the biggest clue. Yeah, but otherwise, I I have to say the flavor profile. The, the appearance, the smell, everything is pretty spot on. It didn't hold a head very well, uh, which is, I guess, not also not surprising. Yeah. Um, it does list wheat, wheat as one of their ingredients, which helps a little bit, I bet, mm-hmm. in head retention. But yeah, it's interesting. I didn't really... Now I can start to think about the effects of even alcohol, even in a lower alcohol beer. And one of the things that sort of dries up your tongue a little bit at the end. And so... Uh, it doesn't. It, it kind of washes slightly that aftertaste out, right? This is interesting, though. It, <clears throat> I don't. You know, we we listened to John talk about it. And he didn't give us a whole lot of data about the. Uh, excuse me about the uh, brewing process, but uh, it's it's. Um, there's not a lot. What whatever they did did not leave a lot of sugars behind. It's it's quite dry in the finish, yes. and uh, that is kind of surprising to me. Yeah, it seems like you might. You know, 
try not to convert those sugars into alcohol. So I would have kind of expected there to be more body. But well, it's, that's and that was part of our conversation, which is they're really going for a, a low calorie uh, a beer. So they got to start with a very limited malt bill to begin with. Uh, that that was a fifty calorie beer. Um, I'm now holding the IPA, which is a seventy calorie beer, um, and you know it, the. There's no way to um, for it to taste like a 200 calorie beer when there's only 50 in there. So um, yeah, it's pretty dry. But I have to say, it's a lot more interesting than you might expect. And in, in tastes fairly fresh um, and quite beer like. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna go now to the. By the way, they do they do name these. So this was called the Upside Dawn uh, uh, Golden Ale. And the IPA is called the Run Wild um, uh, IPA. So here we go. I'm going to assume that this is is probably going to be the one most people are interested in. Uh, Everybody loves an IPA. And I'm most interested in it because it seems like technically the challenge here is going to be the highest. So In order to get good audio, I kind of had to... Go crazy on the head there. <laughs> That's quite a head, though. Yeah, uh, it is, and and it's got quite a. Um, well, <laughs> I assume, especially since some of it penetrates my my stuffy nose, that uh, it's got quite an aroma. Yeah, I chose a bad glass for audio. Okay, so the appearance of this one, it's also incredibly clear. Uh, it's darker. It's more of an amber color, um, but still a light amber. Looks like an IPA. But it looks like an IPA. Yeah, it does. The hop aroma is subdued. Um, it smells more like an uh, older school IPA. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're not getting like a, it's it's piney. Mm-hmm. What I can tell, at least, is piney. You're not getting much citrus. Hmm. Mm. That does not taste exactly like an IPA. No, it doesn't. Uh, but I quite like it, actually. I mean, uh, I'm not a big fan of golden nails in general. So I was a vegetarian for, for 10 years. Uh-huh. And there's this big thing in, in the vegetarian world of if you're trying to make something that substitutes meat, do you try to make it taste like meat? Right. Or do you try to go for something else? Um, and... Uh, I think with non-alcoholic beer, you're in that same situation. Mm-hmm. So the question is, from our perspective, should we be judging this as a regular IPA or as its own no. beer? No, I don't think you should be judging it as a regular IPA. I think that's not not fair. What I'm trying to think, what I, the way I'm approaching this is, is this something that I would enjoy drinking if I wanted something non-alcoholic? I really like the hop of bitterness. <clears throat> it's at, they've come in at a very nice level. It's... Um, it's it's got uh, noticeable bitterness, but uh, is not um, uh, doesn't bite too hard. But it's no, and it doesn't last present. in your in your mouth. But I have to say, it it has a pretty round mouth feel and kind of a nice biscuity uh, uh, grain note to it. That's kind of pleasant to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd love to see what they could get if they were going for a really aromatic style. 
which is just not to judge this beer at all, but just yeah, Jeff personally musing, like if you're trying to do that. How yeah, you, you think you could dump a, dump a bunch of you know uh, citra and mosaic or something on the cold side and, and see what that does. Uh, but I have to say, uh, the golden ale is probably not what I would choose in no matter what kind of beer, alcohol or non-alcohol. <laughs> uh, IPAs tends to be more what I choose, but I, um, I find uh, I don't have that same kind of um, aftertaste in the gold that I had in the golden ale. This one sort of finishes pretty dry in my mouth, and it leaves a nice little hoppy. Yeah, the, the hoppy aftertaste. Bitterness. The aftertaste here is is much more in the hop. Mm-hmm. It's because the hops do a good job of leaving a nice flavor yeah. in your mouth. So not surprisingly. So I and the head is lasting a lot longer here too. I was wondering if that was going to be an issue. Yeah, you still yeah, have like, head and no I still beer. have head and no beer left in mine. So that's <laughs> that's impressive. Yeah, I would say the golden was uh, closer to an alcoholic golden mm-hmm. uh, than the IPA Western IPA. But yeah, that's I, a good point. I would probably prefer the like you. I think I would prefer the IPA more just because it's a. Uh, um, more in my palate. Yeah. And this also, you know, that they're low calorie, so they're lighter beers. So they're definitely beers that I can imagine sitting around on a nice warm day or after having played soccer, which I often do. Um, so often, too, you know, uh, flavor is a proxy for alcohol. And mm-hmm. so um, I'm thinking, like, I don't really need to drink a golden ale uh, if it's non alcoholic. I might as well just go for the IPA because it's not 6.5%. Right. So. Yeah. yeah, so that's all to say that I would definitely choose the IPA if it were me. So far, we have two more to go. Uh, these are seasonals, I guess. At least this one says seasonal. This is the Goza. Uh, and it is of unknown caloric content. Yeah, we'll take a photo of the... Uh, or I'll take a photo. I, I think we can only post one photo, and we've got a nice photo of John and, and Bill, but I'll post this on the Twitter and whatnot, um, a photo of the, the packaging. So the, the regular beers come in a regular package, and the seasonals have a slightly different package. The The flagship brands have nice uh, in, information uh, on them. And as as you heard, uh, the John and Bill talking, they this is actually a food, not an alcohol. And so when you look at the back of the can you have the nutrition facts that you have when you have a uh, 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 you know a food um, as opposed to uh, a beer so in fact I think you're not even allowed to do that on beer right you're not because it's considered no like a promotional thing and is that right yeah I think so and we still have our like sin approach to alcohol huh. so if anything good I had no idea so you're not allowed to yeah to extol the virtues of what's inside yeah I don't think so but because this is non-alcoholic it gets to. All right, here we go. So the Goza I've poured, you're in the midst of pouring, um, and this one isn't clear. It actually looks quite uh, Goza-like. Yeah. It, <laughs> if you're familiar with, uh, it reminds me of the level of haze that you see in a double mountain beer. <laughs> <laughs> It does have a nice Ooh. little lactic nose. Oh, wow. And uh, so I harbored, I haven't tasted this yet, I harbored the idea that this might be the one that tastes the most like the beer that it mimics because so much of the flavor comes from lactic, right? So, uh, you know, 
seemed a clever way to do that. By the way, each of these can say it contains mm. less than 0.5% alcohol, which I guess is, is the threshold by which you consider yourself non-alcoholic. Yeah, that tastes a lot like a goza. Mm. It's got a nice, um, yeah, there's a nice lactic and there's a really nice uh, lemony snap. This is, a, this is definitely a nice summer beer. It is. This is a great beer. I'm I'm really enjoying this one a lot. This one, um, you know, he was talking. Yeah, you you called it. I didn't think. I actually thought the opposite. I thought Goza might be a really a really hard one to do non-alcoholic. But yeah, well, I was taking a shot in the dark. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I wanted to try these beers. Um, there's a way in which Goza already tastes like an uh, an energy drink, or not an energy drink, but like a Gatorade, a rehydration thing. Yeah, because it's got the a little bit of sweetness. It's got that tartness, and yep. then it's got the salt. Yeah. And here, the the one, the one thing that's not uh, good in all of that is the alcohol. So you right. pull that out, and it's like this is probably like really close to a Gatorade in terms of rehydration. Yeah. Capacity. Yeah. This is what I want after my soccer games. Mm-hmm. Mm. <clears throat> yeah, that is really really nice. I'm really liking that one. Yeah. I also like uh, the use of salt, which is often given short shrift in, in modern gozas. You can I think, taste it here. Absolutely. Yeah. Can you, you should be able to taste salt, right? Yeah. You don't, yeah, I can definitely taste the salt. You don't need a nose for salt. No. Um, yeah, I think, I think it's weird to most drinkers, and so people kind of leave it out a little bit, but um, that combo of, of tart and salt is really nice to me. So. Yeah. Mm. Props to the Goza. Props to the Goza, definitely. That's my fave so far. So we left the stout for last, and this, by by contrast, I thought the stout, stout might be the hardest one to do, so we'll see. Yeah, I don't know. Because it's got a lot of body, I don't know, yeah, I don't know. But some stouts... I, I was really curious. John was not uh, uh, super chatty Kathy, so I'd like to go visit that brewery and... <laughs> go into his brew house off the record and have him walk me through this because I bet some fascinating stuff happens in that brew house. But you could make a fairly light-bodied stout, a.k.a. sort of Guinness draft, that has sort of the roasty flavors that can kind of mm-hmm. compensate. So that's why I wouldn't know for sure. I got to get it. <laughs> We're using the same glass with these. Okay, here we go. I got to stop rousing as much head. That goes it. Audio was nice. Damned. <coughs> I'm going to buy a case of that goes it right now. Oh, wow. Well, this is this is a stout. That man. really looks like a stout. That looks doesn't just it? like a stout. I'm holding up some light. It ain't not, ain't, there ain't much light penetrating that. And you got a nice uh, tan head on it. Yeah. Ooh, a very roasty nose. What penetrates my sinus at this point? These Willie Becker glasses are really bad for uh, audio. Remember that. We've only done this like three years, so. <laughs> We're still in our infancy. <laughs> I know. I watch people who started a podcast, and they do it weekly. And, you know, they've been doing it 18 months, and they're on pod 68 or something. Yep. Way out in front of us. You know, we like to take our time and do it right. <laughs> <laughs> The listeners know that's wrong. <laughs> All right, so uh, here's the stout. This is the last of the four. 
It does have a roasty smell, and uh, but it has a. There's something else in there that I'm not. It's a little. It's like a smoky. It's like. Is it smoke? Is that what there's I'm, some licorice. There's no smoke. I don't think. I, I can't. I'm really uh, struggling here. So. It's a. It's a bit of a char note. Char and licorice. So that has the right flavor profile. Hmm. For sure. Oh yeah, you're totally right on the money. Wow. It has a long lingering roast. It does, yeah. <laughs> Very roasty. Uh yeah. I think maybe you're right about the uh the roast is easy to re- replicate, but um <clears throat> its its dominance is uh, more more prevalent in yeah. a, in a in a beer like this. So it's one of those beers where you gotta like roast. So I'm coming up with this theory, which is probably completely ridiculous, but the way that alcohol interacts with the flavors that linger on your tongue. I talked about sort of it drying out your tongue or something, but it helps, I think it helps sort of those flavors finish quickly rather than sort of linger, mm. perhaps. Because mm. that's the one thing I've sort of noticed with all these these flavors tend to linger longer than I think one with alcohol would have. Alcohol also has a physical sensation on the tongue. Yeah. And um, I don't miss that so much as, but uh, it, with these absent, because, you know, it varies depending on what kind of beer you're drinking. But um, the quality of the effervescence seems different. And I wonder if it's related to that. It feels a little bit more uh, prickly on the tongue. Yeah. I wonder if that has anything to do with the alcohol. So here's a, here's a question. So one of the ways in which I would think that these beers are really useful or really nice to have is, as I described, you go to a bar, you have maybe an IPA or a, a beer or two, and you're ready to be basically done drinking alcohol. And then so you switch to this. And so my question is, how do you think that these beers would follow up? Like you had a couple of Guinness and then you have this. Or you have, uh, I don't know, I guess it doesn't really matter. You have the same style. but uh, I think they would do fine. Yeah. Um, and I think they would work fine in the middle of a session too. Yeah. Uh, that's In between spacing out here. Yeah. So whether... The Red Sox game goes into extra hands and you got to go these or it's like a long game to begin with and you want to sit through the whole game or whatever it is. Um, yeah, I think these are, I think they, they certainly uh, do a good job of tasting like craft beer in the, in the manner that they wanted. And um, Yeah, I mean, I haven't had a, a, an O'Doul's or a whatever in ages, but um, these are interesting Beers. These That's have right. flavors. These have characteristics. These are beers that you get to know. And uh, um, to borrow a term from John Keeling, at Fuller's, you can build a relationship with. <laughs> uh, so they're definitely craft. That's my point. Yep. And I think if um, <clears throat> they've done a good job of replicating the styles in question. So when you order a stout, it tastes like a stout. It doesn't. You know, sometimes when people trying to make things in food or in anything taste like, you know, they're trying to taste like something else. It doesn't really work very well. Yeah. Um, but these taste just like the kinds of beers you expect. Um, the more I drink the stout too, the less the roast seems to be, the, the, the roast is kind of dropping back a bit. Yeah. You're, you're getting used to it. Yeah. Well, yeah, that roast is actually, the, the stout is actually quite nice. Uh, I would, I think, so one thing that I'm, one thing that I'm determining here, sorry about that thump, is these things ride on flavor, right? Because you're not getting any alcohol, right? And so, if, 
for me as a beer drinker, I would go for the more assertive ones Mm -hmm. and not so much for the, like that golden. I don't see any reason to drink the golden personally myself, but, but you know, if you don't like beer that well, but you like a beer a little bit, maybe that's the one to go for. But if I'm looking to uh, mix these into my, my session, I would go for the more full flavored ones. Yeah, I agree entirely. I think that's exactly right. That so you really feature those flavors mm-hmm. um, without the alcohol. Um, so having a subdued beer or a very, very mellow beer like the Golden is maybe not um, your first choice unless that's that's what you're looking for. All right, here's a little yes. a little chatter for you. Okay, uh, if you were going to recommend for athletic the, the, a, a new style, which one would you? Oh, a new style for. What would Patrick like to drink in his session? Uh, okay, you're going to have to give me a yeah. Sorry, I sprang about that this. On have you. Have you thought about this as well? Uh, I haven't thought about this. So I was going to I, I was going to say before you asked me that question, where you sort of pinned me down in style is <laughs> is sort of the opposite. It's, it would be nice just to brew a beer, not thinking about style, but thinking about all you've learned about non-alcohol oh, beer, right, right, right. like what hops worked well, what grains worked well, and then just come up with something entirely new. Like this is what I think. Uh, and not and not worry about being beholden to style, mm-hmm. if, that, if if that makes sense, um, because I imagine that you know in this process only four months in, well, I'm sure right. the brewing process has been a lot longer than that, the development process has been a lot longer than that. But still, I imagine you're learning all about these ingredients and what works well and what doesn't work as well uh, in a non-alcoholic content uh, context. Um, so I would be really interested to see what a brewer could come up with who's not too worried about style. But I guess that's another way of saying pale ale. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> this will shock no one, but I would be interested in seeing how a saison would work. Because mm. uh, you get a lot of yeast character, so it seems like that's a way to, to build flavor without um, having to depend on those things. Yeah, so I wonder I wonder how those yeasts do in a really low low sugar environment, I suppose. Like, are they stressed? Do they produce different esters? That's great. Saison yeasts express all their character when they're stressed. So stress yeah. those bastards out. Okay. Pitch it warm. Uh, you get most of that that development early on. So yeah. even if you're not fermenting long, which we don't know how long they're fermenting, you should you should pick up some of that. It seems like so. Brilliant. I'm with you. Let's. They should do that. All right. Uh, You've heard it. <laughs> Athletic. Of course, saison saisons are commercial death, as all brewers know. So uh, <laughs> I, I, of course, recommend the one style that won't sell. But uh, yeah, so maybe like your five-year anniversary after you really <laughs> establish yourself, then you can you can throw that torpedo into the the mix. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> cool. All right, well, thank you very much to Athletic Brewing for, for sending us these beers. Um, yeah, and we have enough to share with other people, so we'll do that and report back as we uh, hear some of the reflections from folks. Yeah, I'm pretty excited. These are, these are very drinkable beers. Uh, they have the flavors you expect, um, and I hope this, uh, this trend continues. All right, we have one mailbag. Mailbag. It comes from Kyle, uh, and it's a good question. Okay. He writes, Shoot. I listen to Spotify at my desk job all day long, and probably every half hour or so, I get one or two commercials with Jim Cook bragging about how Sam Adams is, quote, gloriously inefficient and, quote, uh, only use heirloom Mittelfru hops, unlike the industrial brewers who only try to drive down costs everywhere. And he says, paraphrase on that last one. Um, well, it's tempting to get uh, to try to get you to dunk on some of these more eye-rolling <laughs> inducing claims. I'm curious if you could comment on what Sam Adams ought to be doing to get them out of their current rut. Uh, 
uh, I have to suspect that leaning into the cult of Jim Cook is really not going to work. That's a very interesting question. Uh, yeah, so Sam Adams is kind of an interesting because they don't really have a, a, a sort of a brewing tradition or a, or a, a place to kind of fall back on and uh, and talk about their you know their old brewery and the, <laughs> and the decades of tradition, which is why the whole gloriously inefficient thing is. Uh, almost insulting because they go and get their beer brewed at big breweries. So anyway, uh, uh, what ought they be doing? Um, I don't know. You have thoughts? You know, I don't have... Uh, where they go from here is such a challenging thing because they have made it a number of decisions that I think were ill-advised. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know, Sam Adams made this very, very nice uh, amber lager, yep. which... Uh, is what the entire brewery is built on. And then for the last decade, they've been busy trying to, not supporting that beer and trying to brew other stuff. And so they have, you know, that weird um, uh, uh, nitrogenated can thing. And they've tried different IPAs and they've tried all these different kind of products. And they all kind of draw attention away from exactly what Kyle says that they're advertising now, which is this old you know, lager tradition. Um, so I just think that the brand is muddied that way. If you, Yeah, I'd like to think I have brilliant advice, but of course, <laughs> you know, that anything I say is going to be something that they've thought about and tried. But I would think that, yeah, retrenching, um, because they got, they had so many different beers out for a while, and they still do have a lot of beers out for a while. Plus they've got cider things going and other malt beverages and stuff um that it's it's uh it's hard to find that they're there with their actual beer and so sort of uh retrenching on that original boston lager beer and then maybe spinning off a few things from that but but really becoming a much more simple story to follow if that if that makes sense from a branding perspective one thing that i think i i've come to conclude is um, if you're, especially if you're an older brewery uh, that has a flagship that's well known in the marketplace, that really is your brand. And, you know, of course you want to, you know, if you're making Sierra Nevada Pale or you're making Black Butte Porter uh, or you're making a Boston Lager, you want to try to expand the portfolio. But in everybody's mind, you're always going to be Sierra Nevada Pale or Black Butte Porter or uh, Boston Lager. And if you don't support those brands, why should anybody else support you or your uh, your brewery? And so I think you know when people when when these big breweries start to lose their focus and do other things, if they don't support their their uh, uh, flagship brand, they're inadvertently undermining their entire brand identity. And I think that's always unsafe. So that's <clears throat> I'd go back to Boston Lager and and just talk about how it's the best lager made in America, which is probably less implausible than some of the claims they're making on the, uh, <laughs> on these ads. So, uh, that's, that's what I would do. Yep. I think that's all you can do at this point. Yeah. And I mean, the, the funny thing is if they just stuck to their guns and waited, you know, loggers have come back around now. Log- everybody's making a logger and they had the position, but now it's very difficult to get back in there. So here's a, a related, but slightly different question, but I think it might be some of what he's getting at too, which is that, um, Jim Cook is a different type of figurehead, mm-hmm. right? Than a lot of these other craft 
breweries where you have the founder brewer, right? <laughs> you know, they're, this is something that they built, you know, from scratch and, and built up. And Jim is very much the business person who founded a drinks company, you know, a beverage company, right? Um, so uh, I guess the question is, do you, do you continue to rely on him as the spokesperson or do you, uh, you know, is he, is he a, is he a reliable, a credible personality that you want to hang your brand on now? Or do you want to move away from him and just focus on the brand itself? Does that make sense? <laughs> it does make sense. I'm giving you eyebrows raised because going away from Jim seems like a wild thing. I yeah. I mean, I haven't ever even considered he, that. He has, you He's know, he has positioned, himself, yeah, he has positioned himself as sort of the face of the, of, of his company, which is, which makes sense, but he doesn't have that that sort of story, that narrative that, you know, uh, other breweries have perhaps, and maybe it's time, you know, and, and he's now sort of taken the company in, in tons of different directions, and maybe it's time now to just focus on the Sam Adams Boston Lager and then some offshoots of that, sort of retrenches, I guess that way. Yeah. Who knows? So, so I have, <clears throat> I'm going to tell a story here. I know we're about ready to go out, but um, when I was in high school in Salt Lake City, Utah, uh, I started drinking beer, as high school students will. Shocking. But some of my not friends, Brett were, Kavanaugh, though. Uh, not Brett Kavanaugh. Let's not go down that road. That is uh, <laughs> that road lies madness. Um, but some of my friends were Mormons, and uh, on one particular occasion, uh, there might already have been some drinking in the evening, and a friend uh, took bottles of O'Doul. This everything was twist top. Right. Uh, took bottles of whatever I don't know, Budweiser. Poured the O'Doul's into those bottles and gave them to me as a way to stop my crazy behavior. <laughs> and I knew instantly that they were non-alcoholic. And it was the first moment when I be I was like, "That's my beer geek coming out." Like I instantly identified <laughs> that in my first blind tasting ever. Uh, and they were impressed and kind of. Uh, disappointed that I didn't buy that ruse. All of which is to say... And look at you now. They were ultimately unsuccessful in diverting your path. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Debauchery. Yeah. Uh, we've been drinking uh, these beers right now, and I have the expectation in the back of my head of that little tickle that starts coming in the back of my head. Yeah. Uh -huh. And um, it's not coming. <laughs> <laughs> so yep. that's interesting. I think that uh, yeah, there as is one metric of success, they have uh, they have fooled my brain into thinking I'm having I'm drinking beer, right? And uh, you know the alcohol will follow. Yeah. Excellent. Well, uh, once again, thanks again to Athletic Brewing. Uh, it was nice to talk to those guys, uh, and um, there that ends our pod. That ends our pod. So, so thanks very much stuff. for listening to the podcast. We'd like to encourage you to rate us. Uh, subscribe to us on iTunes. Uh, it helps other listeners find us. Um, a few more words about getting in touch, uh, and please do get in touch. Uh, if you'd like to send us some feedback, email jeff uh, at com. Sorry, let me do that again. You can email us at jeff at com or visit the Beervana Blog Facebook page. We'd love to hear from you. Please send us questions, comments. If you know of other non-alcoholic craft beer, please let us know. That's right. If you've had a chance to taste the athletic beer, please let us know what you think. Um, and if you have any other comments, suggestions, questions, shoot them. Yeah. Let us, uh, the, we're, we're trying to get back on track here. We're doing pretty good. Uh, I think we're pretty close to two weeks after the last one. Um, so 
uh, we need that mailbag to be stuffed full so we can get to it. So please send us questions, comments, critiques, whatever you got. All right. All right. Hey, you know what? I I drank my beer, so I want to go to that Goza. Um, Going back into the Goza. I still have a little stout left, so we'll cheers with that. Ooh, good thing we had a little Goza left. Yeah, the Goza is nice. I think I think we never talked about this, but that's probably what I think is the best one. I think my favorite is the Goza too. Yeah. All right. Cheers, Jeff. Cheers, Patrick. Thank you.